If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine. And we're pleased to bring you a very special offer. Subscribe to BBC History Magazine today and you can choose a book worth up to £30. Choose from either Queens of the Crusades by Alison Weir, The Children of Ashenelm by Neil Price, Agent Sonia by Ben McIntyre or The Story of China by Michael Wood. Not only that, you'll also get every issue of BBC History Magazine delivered direct to your door, all from just £22.45. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash history book. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. You'll receive your book within 28 days of ordering. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's guest is the MP and author Chris Bryant, whose new book, The Glamour Boys, tells the story of a group of young queer British MPs who were some of the first to oppose appeasement and warn Britain's government about the dangers of Hitler. Our deputy editor, Matt Elton, gave Chris a call to find out more. 
your new book is called The Glamour Boys. Um, what period is it set in and who do we mean when we talk about that group of people? So it's basically the story of a group of mostly conservative members of parliament uh, in the 1920s and 1930s, um, leading up to the Second World War, who at the beginning of the 1930s, used, uh, who were all queer or nearly queer, by which I mean somewhere between homosexual and bisexual, not that they would have understood those terms at all. Um, and uh, at the beginning of the 1930s, they used to travel to Germany quite a lot because it was probably the most sexually liberal place in the world. Um, and, you know, it's that kind of era of cabaret, the movie and so on, uh, in the Weimar Republic, when in theory it was illegal to be, uh, uh, to, to engage in homosexuality in Germany, but nonetheless it was very much tolerated and there were hundreds and hundreds of bars um, across the country and in particular in Berlin. So all these people went to Germany at the beginning of the 1930s basically to have sex. They got to know some of the early gay Nazis. Uh, in 1934, Hitler killed all the gay Nazis in the Night of the Long Knives. And then the story then back in the UK is of how these men who uh, got elected as MPs became the most vociferous opponents of the policy of appeasement in the UK. It's an extraordinary story and one which I have to confess I haven't heard much about before I read your book. Why do you think that is and how did it first come to your attention? Well, when I first sort of came across some of the characters like Jack McNamara, who was the MP for Chelmsford, uh, who was colonel in the London Irish Rifles. Um, He was in the Indian Army when he was a young man as well. He got into all sorts of trouble. I'd heard about how he had Guy Burgess, later known as the Soviet spy, as his researcher when he was a young conservative MP. Um, So I'd heard about Jack, but um, I I never thought it'd be possible to write a full history book about these people because, of course, there's no paperwork to, um, you know, there were were no families to keep their record. Um, I didn't think there'd be anything around that would be enough to produce a a non-fiction, a factual, historical account of their lives. But actually, remarkably, there's all sorts of stuff. So so one of the guys I write about is called Rob Bernays, who actually married during the Second World War. He had two sons, and um, both of them have let me see all his private papers, all his letters to Nan, who he married in in, in the Second World War, and his Live and his um, his diary, his handwritten diary of an of a, a, a very complicated episode in Australia in 1930, um, when Earl Beecham effectively got hounded out of society for being gay. So, so I, I've come across lots and lots of little bits and pieces, which and out of that I've managed to put together the whole puzzle um, of how their lives were. And uh, I mean, just fascinatingly, Jack McNamara. Um, shared a house for quite a while with a man who was a married archdeacon in the Church of England, Herbert Sharp. Herbert Sharp's daughter, Catherine, um, kept all the photos. Um, she, she was slightly resentful of Jack McNamara being brought into the house all the time because obviously, you know, her, her dad was married. Um, and she tells stories of Guy Burgess turning up as well and her overhearing conversations between him and another um, gay young man. Um, so it's been extraordinary being able to find bits and pieces and, and put the whole thing together. You've mentioned a couple of individuals there um, and you've talked a bit about the terminology. I think we should talk a bit more about that just briefly at the start here, because queer is obviously a label now that is still somewhat problematic. 
Um, why did you decide to choose that particular term? And do you think it's at all how these people would have seen themselves? It's really difficult knowing what word to use. The word homosexual did exist, but sometimes they used um, words that we never hear of today, like earning and uranist, um, which is, belongs to a kind of ideology that long ago um, was surpassed. Um, whether they would have, nobody conceived of somebody as being inherently homosexual. You know, the church and everywhere taught the homosexual practices were a vile perversion. Um, and, you know, you just basically had to, if you had those urges, you had to resist them. And that's, um, and that's why the law was really, really strict at the time. Um, the Labouchere Amendment, which had been passed towards the end of the 19th century, um, made it a criminal offence um, to engaging in gross indecency, um, even though that wasn't really very well defined. But that meant any kind of homosexual act, whether done in private or, or in public, or for that matter, um, even trying to procure acts of gross indecency. So, for instance, sending a, a, a loving note to another man could be enough to convict you and send you to prison with hard labour for up to two years. And, and politicians were still defending the idea of using the rod um, to castigate, uh, you know, um, men who were caught. So I ended up with the word queer because it sort of, it was a word that meant something at the time. Pe people thought of homosexual, people would refer to people as, that we would now call gay or homosexual as queer. And in fact, there's one very weird headline in one of the newspapers at the time when Jack McNamara gets into trouble in the by-election in Upton in 1934 for his... Um, apparent support for Hitler, um, the, the newspaper headline says queer antics. And you go, hmm, now I wonder what they're trying to suggest there. Nice so there's subtle, a lot of yeah. innuendo and insinuation in this period. Um, even the word bachelor sometimes meant um, something odd. And the word glamour um, is probably the most problematic of all because we think of glamorous as being a good thing. Uh, you know, that's a um, a compliment to calling somebody else glamorous. But at the time, the word glamour meant a spell. Um, it was something that was bewitching and ultimate, alluring and ultimately effeminate. So to call a man a glamour boy was an, an insinuation about their sexuality. And um, this is one, one of the fascinating things about the story that Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister, deliberately recruited Sir Joseph Ball, who was a, an intelligence officer formerly from MI5, to run a black ops operation for him out of Downing Street. Um, in, and he it was who called these people, who hung out with Anthony Eden and Winston Churchill and so on, called them the glamour boys as a way of undermining them. Um, and, and, he, and he had their phones tapped, they were followed, they were accused of being um, perpetual bachelors and all the rest of it. So it's a, it's a fascinating tale. Hmm. Um, and we'll get on to the meat of that in a minute. I think the first part of your book is really interesting, though, as well, where you explore the sort of formative experiences, if you like, of some of these men, who very briefly is a cast of kind of main characters of your book. And why were they all drawn to Berlin at some stage? Uh, so Jack McNamara uh, was the, uh, subsequently became the MP for Chelmsford. He was a young man uh, born in India, um, but educated in the, U in the UK as what he called an empire orphan. Like many young men, he joined the army, um, and um, and through his friendship with uh, Herbert Sharp, the archdeacon, married archdeacon, 
who was very, very wealthy. He managed to uh, engineer quite a lot of trips to Germany and met lots of the early gay Nazis. Um, Rob Bernays uh, was actually a liberal MP, but the Liberal National Party was on the government benches where in, on, in the House of Commons where um, the government had enormous majorities um, all the way through from 1931 to 1945. Um, and he had very close friendship with Harold Nicholson, who was married to Peter Sackville West, though both of them were homosexual and had numerous affairs with lots of other people. Harold Nicholson, incidentally, was also a very close friend of Jack McNamara and the various moments I've discovered in Harold Nicholson's diary where they go off for what certainly read like romantic um, weekends away. Um, Ronnie Cartland. Cartland's the name probably people have heard of most because of his elder sister Barbara, the novelist, who at the time was one of the bubbliest, um, naughtiest, uh, most risque of writers and and not the great kind of... um, pink meringue that we knew <laughs> in later years. Um, and Ronnie Cartland um, was a, uh, never had the same amount of money that some of the others had. Uh, he was elected in 1935 in the general election and became a very uh, sharp critic of Neville Chamberlain and of the policy of appeasement. Uh, and in fact, I mean, one of the great sadnesses of his life was that he was part of the defence of Cassell, um, which protected the evacuation at Dunkirk. And that's where he lost his life in a very brave, um, you know, few months of of, campaign, of the military campaign. Um, and then there's Victor Cazalet, um, who was very wealthy. Um, he, in the Second World War, uh, was perhaps best known for his, um, he was the liaison officer with the Free Poles under General Sikorsky, with whom, incidentally, he was killed um, in, in an airplane crash. Uh, But he also ran a monstrous regiment of gentlemen, um, an anti-aircraft battery during the Second World War, um, which was also known as the Buggers Battalion. Um, And because of the permissiveness of Berlin, these people had at various points sort of orbited the city. Um, I think it's fascinating. There's a line in your book where you say that um, the parliament that they joined in 1931 was a surprisingly welcome home to a large number of queer or nearly queer bachelors. Um, why were they all drawn to this parliament and what was the atmosphere like? Well, even Winston Churchill called it a masculine assembly. I mean, it was all men and you could spend the, all of your life, um, you know, quite politely in the company of other men. It was very what I would call homosocial. Um, so, you know, uh, Rob Bernays and Ronnie Cartland lived in bachelor's apartments in Petit France, um, where they shared a bathroom between them. Um, they, uh, they were all members of gentlemen's clubs, which would obviously only have men. Parliament was only men. Jack McNamara in the London Irish Rifles. I mean, I've come across lots of people who said, well, actually, quite a lot of the officers um, in his regiment were uh, gay. And, and nobody seemed to make two bones about it. It was, it was just a kind of part of life. Um, Harry Cruikshank, another government minister, uh, um, nobody really knew that he was homosexual until many years afterwards when he tried to get his lover um, selected as in a next-door seat. And um, I think it was his alcoholism rather than his homosexuality that got him into trouble in the end. Um, but uh, it's fascinating that out of... Um, 680 MPs, I think there were at the time, uh, a, a, a much higher proportion of the MPs were bachelors 
than of the wider population in the UK. So do you think to some extent it offered a respite from the homophobia of wider society or is it more a positive thing of just wanting to be surrounded by like-minded people? I, I just think that it, it's a, it, was, it was a very complicated period to, to steer through if you were a, if you if, if you were a man who loved men, <laughs> I don't, you know, what term do we use? We, we keep on coming back to this, don't we? If you were a gay man in that period, um, what, how, did you, how would you live your life? There were some options. You, you could marry, um, Harold Nicholson did, um, and had kids um, and had a very loving uh, relationship, but had plenty of sex, including at the Turkish baths in German Street. Um, quite often, which was often referred to as the Savoy. People thought you'd been to the Savoy Hotel or the Savoy Grill, but you'd actually been to the Savoy Turkish Bath. Um, Sir Paul Latham, uh, he married, and in fact, when, the, when he married, the, one, of the lo- one of the kind of society magazines said, we were a bit surprised <laughs> because he didn't seem the marrying type. Um, and in fact, once, they'd, um, once he and his very glamorous uh, wife had had a child, um, he got into terrible trouble in the Second World War, was cashiered out of the army um, for having an affair with, or having sex with um, various other army officers. Um, and, you know, that, and the, everything came down on his head. So there were various options to you. You could get married and live a kind of um, a marriage of convenience. Another option was to, um, was to repress it and to do absolutely nothing about it. That's always a difficult thing to achieve in life. Um, to, to completely repress your sexuality, um, and then the other option was to was to just to try to be very very discreet. So you you know if you were referring to somebody else in your life, you would make sure that um, you you swapped his to hers and he to she. Um, sometimes you know people were quite in the know, and you'd be a bit more relaxed. Um, there are various moments like um, when one of them says, I'm terribly sorry, I've got to go home now. Um, I, I, I've got to think of my youth. And Lady Cunard says, well, you could have brought him along. Um, so there are moments where everybody's in the know, but most of the time, you know, you just have to be terribly, terribly discreet. And if you say the wrong thing in the wrong place, you're in for it. Hmm. While all this was going on, of course, there were storm clouds gathering in Germany. Um, what was the first point at which how to deal with uh, Germany started becoming an issue for this particular parliament? And how did they react to it? So the first two people to really raise the alarm bells in the UK, even before Churchill was doing this, about um, the rise of the Nazi party in Germany were um, Rob Bernays, writing as a journalist mostly, um, who went on several different trips, including with Ronnie Tree, another of the Glamour Boys, um, and Bob Boothby. Um, and th- they, they were courageous, even when lots of people in the UK were saying, oh, you know, the Treaty of Versailles was too harsh on Germany, we should let Germany get up off its knees and so on. They were saying, well, hang on, there are really worrying signs um, of what's happening in Germany. I think in 1934, the Night of the Long Knives really shocked a lot of these people because for the first time they had friends, people they had met who had been executed. The Times referred to um, the, the exe- all these um, summary executions in 1934 um, as clearing up. Um, and I guess that was because they thought the homosexuality needed to be cleared up. 
Um, but after that, Hitler starts, you know, a very a, a series of attacks on Jews and homosexuals, and both of those two elements together um, mean that, for instance, Victor Kaslitz's best friend, a uh, best German friend, anyway, Gottfried von Kram, very famous uh, German uh, tennis ace, um, he gets sent to prison and um, for being homosexual and having an affair with a, a man who was a Jew. Um, and uh, Victor Kaslett helps that, uh, um, his lover get out of Germany, to, first of all to Portugal and then subsequently to Palestine. Um, so, and, and from that moment on, all of this group steadily become more and more convinced that we had to rearm and fight Hitler, not appease him. Um, and then you, you, know, you have the, the row over Czechoslovakia, uh, over the Anschluss, over the treatment of the Jews, um, and, it, and, and, and it builds and builds and builds. And everybody, right up until that very final moment when we do go to war with Germany, everybody is frightened that basically Chamberlain thinks that you can do a deal with Hitler. He's a man to do a deal with. Mm. So the big battle over the Munich um, appeasement moment and Chamberlain coming back with his piece of paper, which he thought was peace uh, for our time and so on. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. If I met them now, each individual might say to me, I, I, how dare you say that I was queer? But if they'd grown up today, maybe they'd have a very different attitude. Um, and the sadness is that those who died in the war probably could have been, you know, big figures in politics after the war. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Do you think that their homosexuality and the fact they were they had experience of being in a minority meant that they were happier swimming against the tide politically? I think that um, all of these men had two reasons for going against what everybody thought was the tide of public opinion in the, in the UK. Uh, one was, in a sense, they were already outsiders. They, they, they were used to living their lives... On, on on the side, as it were. So, and Ronnie Cartland, despite being a Conservative MP with a 
father who was, you know, very much immersed in the Conservative Party and so on as well, uh, he was courageous in attacking Neville Chamberlain for not doing enough about the depressed areas um, of the United Kingdom. And I think by, by the time you got to 1939, he was almost toying with joining the Labour Party um, and certainly resigning from the Conservative Party. Uh, so uh, I think all of them felt that they were on the outside, but always worrying about how that left them exposed. Um, and maybe that gave them a stronger sense of um, being able to um, take the fight to the government and rebel. Mm. You alluded to this earlier, but how did uh, Chamberlain respond? Chamberlain hated these people. He thought that uh, they were an irritant for him. They just didn't understand that. Um, uh, and he was always a man who didn't really take to criticism very kindly anyway. Um, but he set up a special unit uh, led by Sir Joseph Ball, which was the, the main aim of which um, was, uh, was to circumvent the normal processes of diplomacy. So he set up a secret back channel with Italy, with Mussolini, um, which effectively led to Anthony Eden's resignation as foreign secretary. Um, and secondly, um, it was designed to um, produce uh, um, a, a sort of black ops operation against the Glamour Boys. First of all, calling them insurgents and then calling them um, the rebels and then finally calling them the Glamour Boys as a way of really insinuating something nasty about them. Um, Joseph Ball admitted later that he, he tapped uh, Ronnie Tree's phone uh, which is and they quite often the rebel the, the rebels the glam boys met in Ronnie Tree's house, um, very grand house by um, St James's Park, uh, and um, and and the other extraordinary thing is that Joseph Ball bought up um, a highly influential magazine at the time called Truth and used it to pump out all this appalling anti-Semitic nonsense. Um, week in week out, you know, undermining Jewish members of the government. Um, undermining anybody who really wanted to question the policy of appeasement. It must have taken a lot of bravery to keep going in the face of such concerted uh, pushback. Yeah, well, for Ronnie Cartland, well, you know, was getting letters saying you should be hanged for treason. Um, incidentally, not all that dissimilar from some of the discussions we've had in politics in the last couple of years. Um, and Jim Thomas, who was uh, parliamentary aide, PPS to Anthony Eden, uh, he was threatened with deselection all the time. Um, and there was a very strong feeling, though it was difficult to be precise about what public opinion really thought, because we didn't have opinion polls on issues all the time uh, back in the 1930s. Um, nonetheless, it was everybody's perception was that everybody was in favour of appeasement. So they were definitely going out on a limb and swimming against the tide on their own. Um, but, but of course, there's a double bravery in that because if somebody's running a black ops operation against you, there's a real danger that when you put your head above the parapet, um, the easiest way to you know, chop you down is to start insinuating something about your sexuality. And so that's why I think that these were phenomenally brave men. Um, now, it's true that Victor Cazalet, for instance, was wealthy. I mean, you know, he could walk away from politics if he wanted to. But the shame of, um, you know, being referred to as homosexual 
was phenomenal at this time. And, and of course, you know, the law, as I've said, was very, very strict. Is it fair to say that their intervention made a definitive difference to the outcome? So everybody thinks that we went to war because of Churchill and, um, and Anthony Eden and the two of them. And it's true that Churchill and Eden were at a lot of the meetings um, with this other group. But the, these were the organisers. These were the tight-knit um, community of friends. You know, in particular, Harold Nicholson, uh, Jack McNamara, Rob Bernays and Ronnie Cartland. I mean, they dined together two, three times a week. Um, they, you know, they hung out together. They organised together. And I, without Ronnie Cartland's intervention, for instance, in the, in the adjournment debate, uh, when he accuses Neville Chamberlain of, um, uh, of, of being a dictator, I don't think there would have been that sharpness in the call and in the determination to, to oppose appeasement. And in the end, um, of course, a lot of these men um, enlisted. They, they, they played an active part in, in, in the Second World War as well. So um, I, I don't think we would have gone to war without them. What happened to them during the war? So th- those who were young enough all enlisted. Jack McNamara was, was always in the army. He was colonel of his regiment by the time it came to the beginning of the war. Um, he desperately, desperately, desperately wanted to lead his troops into action. But um, he faced uh, quite a bit of prejudice um, from Pug Ismay and others who thought that um, either you shouldn't have an MP uh, leading troops or you shouldn't have a gay MP leading troops. Um, and so he kept on writing letters, begging Churchill to give him a proper command. And, uh, but he was sent off to look after the, um, uh, airfields, um, in Northern Ireland. He was sent off to do all sorts of jobs, which didn't really feel like leading troops in action and in danger. And it wasn't until 1943 that eventually he was sent off to, um, to Africa and then took part in, um, some of the the raids uh, freeing Greece, um, and he was killed in action uh, when he went to visit his old troops who had been um, who were on the River Senio and had been fighting throughout uh, bravely in Italy. Um, Ronnie Cartland is is probably the the, the saddest story of all. He um, he joined the Royal Artillery. Uh, he went off with the Royal Artillery um, as part of the British Expeditionary Force uh, in 1940. Quite a bit of the time, it, you know, his letters show that he was bored. It didn't really feel like war. And then suddenly um, it, it, it all kicked off. And he was um, in charge of all the anti-tank um, uh, armory at Cassel, which is, which is a little fortress town um, in the kind of triangle between Calais and Dunkirk. And um, the troops had to stay there um, for a prolonged, basically to keep the German advance back so that more people could be evacuated from Dunkirk. And then late um, one night, they had to set off um, trying to be as quiet as possible in the cover of darkness to try and get back to Dunkirk. And on the way back, he was shot in the head when, um, uh, when the Germans captured them. Um, Victor Cazalet, uh, he had a different life. He, he, um, he had his monstrous regiment of gentlemen, um, but then that was split up. And so he became the liaison officer with the Free Poles, who became an, a really important part of the British effort, worked with Sikorsky, travelled um, around the world with him, visiting the troops, and then was killed 
um, when their aircraft uh, tried to take off from Gibraltar. Um, and Rob Bernays, uh, he, uh, he, he had a kind of civilian job for the first part of the war, but felt guilty and eventually uh, enlisted. Um, he was... Um, he, he, he had to do ordinary guard duty um, and felt that that was a bit of a waste of time. But then they, he was recruited to do um, morale-boosting lectures for troops up and down the country. And it was as part of one of those um, expeditions uh, to Italy um, and then on to Greece that, again, his airplane uh, was lost uh, somewhere over the Adriatic and he, and he was killed. Um, I was really struck um, that this is a history that nobody's known about. And I've had to sort of tease out of people. I, I spoke to <laughs> one um, elderly member of the House of Lords and said, um, uh, do you mind if I ask a, an indelicate question of you? And he said, you're going to ask me whether my father was homosexual, aren't you? And I said, well, yes, I am. And he said, well, honestly, I haven't the faintest idea because I was only six when he died. Um, but let me put it this way. His best man, Roddy, uh, uh, his best man and his best friend, Ronnie Carland, he certainly was. I mean, it's an extraordinary story, full of extraordinary individuals. If you could somehow travel back in time and witness a scene from your book or go and interview someone, who, who would you choose? Two things I'd love to do. One, I'd love to go to Boulestin, which was the restaurant um, opened by Marcel Boulestin in uh, Mayfair. And uh, uh, Marcel was gay, a uh, Frenchman. Um, he'd actually written a gay novel uh, called Les Fréquentations de Maurice, which sounds remarkably like E.M. Um, e. Forster's novel, Morris. Um, and it was similarly uh, gay-themed. It could be published in France, because the law was more liberal there, but not in the UK. Um, but he, set up, he had this beautiful restaurant, and lots of... Um, uh, all the glamour boys went to dine there. It was the best place to be. And I think they had a good time. Um, I, I would have loved to have been around the table when they were doing some of their plotting in quite high camp sometimes way, I think. The other key moment I, I would love to have witnessed is the debate in the House of Commons um, when everybody on all the glamour boys are terrified that the government is going to suspend parliament for a long long time um so that it can get away with appeasing hitler um and um this is the summer recess debate you would think you know how could that matter but it's it's the real clinch moment of whether britain is really going to um succumb to hitler's uh, blandishments and and so on and um uh, so the glamour boys have heard the Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. He's uh, been deliberately inflammatory in, in the House of Commons, but he's got a massive chunk of Tory votes behind him. So he's bound to win the vote. So the glamour boys come out into the lobby and they're wondering what on earth to do. Um, Churchill is looking for Ronnie Cartland. Um, and uh, one of the others says, well, Ronnie's just gone to the loo. So he, Churchill finds him in the loo. And they have a conversation and, he, and Churchill says, no, now is the time to go back in, take the fight to them. And so Ronnie goes back in, not having prepared a speech at all, gets called to speak. He's far too overexcited. I mean, he's, he's, he's virtually shouting his speech. And of course, nobody on his side of the house is supporting him at all. Um, and 
Um, he's the only Birmingham MP to disagree with Neville Chamberlain, who thinks of Birmingham as his kind of backyard. Um, and one of Ronnie Cartland's next-door neighbour MPs, who had originally proposed for him to become an MP, Patrick Hannan, is really, really supportive of the Prime Minister and hates what Ronnie's saying. Ronnie suggests in the debate that Chamberlain has ideas of dictatorship. And then and the chamber starts shouting at him and, um, and he's finding it really, really difficult. And he sort of manages to calm himself down. And, and, but as everybody's attacking him, because, of course, he's now already in the Royal Artillery, he knows exactly what's going to come if war happens. It will affect him directly. And he says, we are in the situation that within a month we may be going to fight and we may be going to die. Patrick Hannon, his old friend, laughs at him. And yet only a few weeks later, Ronnie does go off to fight in the British Expeditionary Force. And just a few months after that, does die. Um, so I'd love to have been there to witness that moment where high drama, because the, the House of Commons can turn, emotionally can turn on a sixpence. And that's what Ronnie did in that key moment. How, how would you like your book to change how people see this period and, I suppose, the role of queer people in history? One of the reasons I wrote the book is because there's a very common stereotype about uh, gay men, which is that they're all lily-livered, um, limp-wristed, uh, couldn't catch a ball or point a gun, uh, you know, ultimately cowards and effeminate. And, and in fact, sometimes even some of the people in this book subscribe to that view. Bob Boothby... Um, who uh, said of his time in Germany in, in the late 1920s and early 19, uh, 1930, he said that he was, he was very good looking in his 20s and so was chased around a good deal <laughs> by men, he means, um, and he rather liked it. <laughs> uh, but even he wrote um, that homosexuals do not believe in a future. They are therefore not good at sustained fortitude over long periods of time but they are reckless, and on the spur of the moment, they can be immensely brave. Well, he wasn't brave enough to, be, to own up to his own sexuality during his own lifetime, um, but actually what this book shows is that sustained fortitude, fortitude was precisely what many gay men did, both politically and physically in the war. So I just hope that, th that this book helps slay that myth um, of weak, limp-wristed homosexuals. They were, I, I, if I met them now, each individual might say to me, I, I, how dare you say that I was queer? Um, but if they'd grown up today, maybe they'd have a very different attitude. Um, and the sadness is that those who died in the war probably could have been you know, big figures in politics after the war. Um, so... And, and, and then there's one other thing I desperately, desperately hope. It's awfully easy to think that every piece of progress that we've made with gay rights um, is one forever. But actually, Berlin in 1930 was the most liberal, most fun, most um, relaxed place for a gay man anywhere in the 20th century in the world. And then a few years later, people were being carted off to concentration camps uh, executed and uh, beaten and tortured and killed. Um, so I just hope that people realise that um, our rights are hard won and need to be protected. 
That was Chris Bryant. The Glamour Boys, the secret story of the rebels who fought for Britain to defeat Hitler, is on sale now, published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for the latest episode in our Princes in the Tower series. (laughs) 